Psalm 13, and I'd like to begin by reading uh, the entire chapter for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I keep looking out the windows because I notice that it's a rather gloomy day today. It's not what you expect of summer. We get those afternoon thunderstorms, of course, but first thing in the morning... Floridians aren't used to that. You kind of feel it in the room a little bit. It's, it's a little down, a little dreary, a little downcast. Some of you are actually delighted because you just love rain in all seasons. But the dreariness of our natural context in this moment leads me to want to capitalize upon the mood by asking a, a really important question. And I'll try to ask it a couple ways. Maybe the the simplest way to ask it is this. uh, Do Christians get depressed? Do Christians get depressed? Or I could put it another way. Um, Maybe we can see that they do, but here's a better question, maybe. Is it a sin to be sad? We act like it sometimes. It seemed that way. The, the question is so hard to answer because we have to define our terms. You know, what do I even mean by depression? Um, some of you in the medical field uh, would know that there's actually a manual that diagnoses diseases. Um, it's called the DSM. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, the interesting thing about the DSM is that it's, it's only been around around 100 years. And so when we ask a question like, can Christians get depressed? <laughs> we need to understand that that is a category, that is a term that, that wasn't really being used until the 1950s. We try to answer the question biblically, wondering, okay, well, what about, you know, the definition that we have today in our modern medical uh, research versus what people experience uh, for the last 2,000 years since Christ? But regardless of the de- definition, the, the, the sentiment, the experience surrounding it, that this deep, long downtrodden feeling is something that has existed for a really long time. 
I don't really know how best to define it for you outside of the fact that it is gloom, it is doom, and it isn't just occasional, it lasts a while. As to the question itself about whether or not Christians can be depressed, statistically it would seem so. Now, I'm going to read you some research, and I want you to keep in mind that it is dated. I feel really old now because I'm saying that something from 2005 is dated. But I want you to know that if what I'm saying was true in 2005, it is all the more true in a post-COVID culture in which depression and suicide rates have skyrocketed. So just listen to the research that's almost 20 years old now. One in five people experiences depression, and one in ten experiences a panic attack at some stage in life. An estimated 120 million people worldwide suffer from depression. And studies show that 5.8% of men and 9.5% of women will experience a depressive episode in any given year. Suicide, sometimes the end result of depression, is the leading cause of violent deaths worldwide accounting for, listen to this, 49.1% of all violent deaths, compared to, comparisons are helpful, 18.6% die in war, and 31.3% die in homicide. So I would say statistically that it's possible uh, that Christians experience, too, the same fallenness and brokenness as the rest of the world. I mean, and it kind of would make sense because when you look around at what's going on in our own uh, hearts, in in the church, uh, in the nation, in the world at large, it could be depressing. We acknowledged that last week in some ways, but I mean, I want you just to think about the news that you typically hear about the church, and, and in this case, I'm using church capital C, not necessarily this church. Church splits, problems, moral failures of pastors, Christians backsliding, apostatizing. It seems every week I hear of some famous Christian turning away from the faith. People in churches like this, we lament the fact that some have not been among our number for months now. There's the encroachment of liberal theology into historically biblical institutions, and we think, man, this is horrible. And then you take it and just look on the national level. I mean, there's the anti-Christian direction of government, the dismantling of Judeo-Christian laws and values that undermine the health of families and civilization. Uh, Look on the global scale and you hear stories of war and terrorism and ecological catastrophes and genocide and um, all kinds of natural disasters. And like you're getting inundated with this on a regular basis. And I'm like, oh, I totally understand why 5 and 9% of people are depressed at any given moment. <laughs> I don't know that, that Christians, uh, for whatever reason we think this, could somehow be immune from all this negative news pouring into them on a regular basis. And yet somehow we think we are. You know what, but I'm not, I'm not worried about the, the social answer or the stats Uh, What we need to be concerned about this morning is what do the Scriptures say? And the text that we just read seems to give us some answers. I want you to, this isn't the outline, but I want you to notice three little features of this text that show that Psalm 13 could give us some answer to these questions. First, 
Did you notice the intensity of the psalmist's suffering here? I mean, it is intense. He, he says in this that even God has abandoned him. Now, for those of you who were with us last week, you'll remember that we studied Psalm 12. And Psalm 12 in and of itself is a little bit of a lament. The guy is lamenting the fact that it's just him and God versus the world. Remember that? But notice what happens in Psalm 13. God's not even with him anymore. He feels forsaken and abandoned by God himself. He doesn't experience the help that we were even singing about earlier. Not only is there intensity, but here's another feature of this text. There's duration. He can't seem to shake it. It feels permanent. You notice he says, how long will you forget me forever? How long? How long? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? Do you notice these terms? It's like the, the pain persists in perpetuity. This isn't just that the guy's like in a bad mood. He didn't get like cut off in traffic. It's not as if like, you know, he had an unexpected medical expense. I mean, whatever's going on here is something that has lasted a really long time to the point that he thinks it will last forever. And there's one other interesting feature of this psalm that I'd have you note. I don't always bring out this when we're preaching through the Psalms, but I would have you notice the superscription in your text. That is part of the inspired text. It's in the Hebrew Bible. It says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. What's so fascinating about that little uh, superscription is the fact that uh, the to the choir master indicates for us that this was something that was supposed to be used for corporate worship. So let me translate that for you. Uh, this doesn't mean that this is the private lament of David when he's like out on the battlefield somewhere. This has been translated into experience that is supposed to be shared by the entire congregation. They are to together enter into the mood of this particular song and sing it with one another. Listen to this, unto God. So the fact that a lament of this nature and this type of intensity would be included in the Hebrew worship book and preserved for us in the inspired text indicates to me that Christians can get depressed too. And, and if, if that's the case, what do we do about it? I think that Psalm 13 gives us a couple of invitations when either we are faced with depression or we know someone who is. A couple of invitations. The first is to, and I'm going to keep this as one, even though it sounds like two, is to release and request. We're invited to release and request, to release whatever it is to the Lord and request of Him some type of satisfaction or deliverance. The second thing is to recall as to rely. We're invited to recall, to remember some things about God so that we can rely on him for the future. Released and request is the first. The second is to recall and rely. Let's look at this, this first invitation. Notice how the, the worshipers gathered together are invited to release their angst to God. 
Notice verse 1 again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, we have some disturbing language theologically uh, for those of us who know that, that God is omniscient and omnipresent. Like you read these, these opening lines and you're thinking like, uh, David or whoever the psalmist is needs to update his theology. It seems like he's off here. It seems like he's messed something up. I mean, he's saying that, that God has forgotten something and we know that God hasn't forgotten. But we need to remember that this is prose. I mean, excuse me, this is poetry. It's not prose. It's, it's picturesque language. Any type of, of poetry is allowed this type of license to use metaphor or figure of speech to help get to the emotion of the actual moment. And in this case, we call it an anthropomorphism. It is when you ascribe human attributes to God to help you understand Him. Does God forget anything? Of course not. But does it occasionally seem like he has? Oh, yeah. Does God have a physical face, God the Father, and he actually turns it away? No. But we get the symbolism. See, friends, what the psalmist is lamenting here isn't uh, like uh, some type of theological abnormality. He, He is lamenting an experience in which God does not seem to be acting on his behalf. Uh, The terms that are used here, both remembering and seeing or the beholding of the face, are used regularly throughout the Old Testament not to speak of what God necessarily thinks or feels at any given moment, but what God does. Sometimes it seems as if God is not acting. Let, Let me give you an example. When you see the term God remembering someone in the Old Testament, It is not telling us that he forgot about them and then all of a sudden they came to mind again. What it's saying is that God is now prepared to act on their behalf. Can I give you some examples? The Lord remembered Noah, Genesis 8.1. We know what happened there. In Genesis 8.1, that's when the flood begins to recede and everything begins to go back to normal. Or you remember Rachel in Genesis 30.22. It says, God remembered Rachel. What happened at that moment? Did he just finally like, bring her to mind again as if he had forgotten her? No. He, he actually answered his promise to give her a child. He intervened. He acted. Uh, another one, Hannah, 1 Samuel 1.19. She praises God for remembering her. And what does he do? He acts again on her behalf. Or then there's that story of Samson in Judges 16, 28, where he prays for God to remember him. And it's in that very moment that the strength of God comes upon him and he takes down the temple. It's God acting. And what the the psalmist here is saying is, God, why aren't you acting on my behalf? Why aren't you remembering your covenant? And then he mentions the hiding of the face. It also means something similar. It means the withholding of favor. Uh, last week, as you were dismissed from the service, uh, Pastor Philip actually read to you Numbers chapter 6, verse 25. It's the ironic blessing. You remember that the text says, may the Lord's face shine upon you. That prayer in and of itself is that the people of God would experience actively his blessings, that he would begin acting on their behalf. It's not as if God's face was somewhere else or that it wasn't shining, but he wants them to experience it. 
And I love the term of face shining upon you, especially in light of the dreariness of this particular day. Because as you look outside, you're like, well, where's the sun? All I see is the rain. And yet you know it's back there somewhere, but your experience is different. It's not within your purview to see that the sun is still shining. And it's, it's affecting your experience in a similar way when he says, pray that the Lord's face would shine upon you, saying, well, I pray that it would be within your experience, not just your knowledge, but your experience, that you would know that God is looking out for you. So to the psalmist, though, it seems the opposite. It seems that God has turned his face away. And I actually like the, the imagery. Have you ever, and I would say this to, to husbands in the room, uh, have you ever so disappointed your wife that she could not look at you, like she was physically averse to looking at you. I can't recall anything in particular, but I can't imagine my wife going, (laughs) the turning of the face. We would know that if somebody says, look, get out of my face, what are we saying? I don't want anything to do with you. The psalmist thinks that, that God has essentially done that, that he has shunned him There is no experience of God's favor in his life. And this refusal to act on his behalf has produced some real emotional and societal consequences. Look at verse 2. He continues, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? This taking counsel in my soul is, is so interesting. It's one of those things that when I was doing my translation this week, I was thinking, I'm glad I am not a Hebrew scholar because I don't have a clue how to render this. And so I started looking at different translations, and I found out that nobody else knows what they're doing either. Listen to the variety of ways that people translate this opening line in verse 2. How long must I worry, the N-E-T? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, N-I-V? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, C-S-B? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, (laughs) N-L-T? We've got a whole host of things. The reason why it's so interesting is because basically like, what, what is pictured here is that the psalmist has all these uh, thoughts and decisions that he needs to make, and they're like bottled up within him. They're bottled up within him, and he can't let them out. You know how that is when you have like a bunch of decisions to make? And you're like, I need to do this way, I need to go this way or that way, I need to do this thing or that thing, I need to be with this person or that person. And like those things start to compound, and it's kind of like when you're trying to like pack a suitcase real tight. And like, you're just like jamming the stuff down in there and you, you, know, you push the zipper along and then all of a sudden like you just see the strain of the seams because there's too much in there. That's what the psalmist's soul is like. He's got all these anxieties, these tensions. They're, they're bottled up within him. He can't find any release. I, I, I actually like, I think the NIV the most here where it says, why is there this wrestling within my soul? There's no peace. It's a wrestling match. There's an ongoing struggle within his own heart. And notice, he, he, these aren't just benign decisions. It says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Uh, the word for sorrow in, in the just basic Hebrew lexicon is torment. How long must I be tortured inwardly? If I were to modernize, by the way, um, The first two lines of verse 2, for this more medically informed culture of ours, we would call this anxiety disorder, depression, or panic attacks. 
I'll give you more on this in a second. It's not just that he's suffering internally, but he's also suffering societally. It's a hard thing for you to appreciate the continued lament uh, in the second half of verse 2. And it continues in verses 3 and 4. He's going to talk about this enemy. And notice that in the end of verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, that's hard for us because we do not live in an honor-shame culture. I mean, we know what it is to experience shame, and we all want to be honored. But uh, (laughs) thankfully, this is a capitalist society. We don't care what you think of us if we make enough money. But in that context, honor and shame is everything. And especially if this is Davidic, if if David's the author. By the way, I'm not (laughs) doubting whether or not David could be the author, but I just want you to know that just because it says a psalm of David doesn't necessarily mean that David wrote it. It could mean that it was dedicated to David. But still believe this is inspired text of Scripture. I wouldn't want anybody to hear that and think that I was trying to be a liberal. But the author of this particular psalm, I mean, if it, if it is David, he is actually saying, I represent God to the world, and my enemies are going to triumph over me? This is societal shame at its worst. It basically, uh, he, he feels like the wicked will, will, will prosper over him, that they will succeed. Uh, this would be like, Uh, You having a a hateful, um, just God-loathing family member who makes more money than you and rubs it in your face. Or or if you could imagine, again, uh, maybe a friend from college who has turned away from the Lord, and, and, and you get sick, and you have some type of chronic illness, and they are like the model of health, and they intentionally rub it in your face. They are exalted over you. He's saying, God, you've let the enemy, you've let the unrighteous be exalted over me. Those who have not sacrificed anything for you triumph over those who have. And here's the worst part of this, friends. Sorry, we're taking a deep dive here, but this is just a text. Let me make it worse. No, I'm not making it worse. Listen to how it is worse. It lasts seemingly forever. I mean, it's bad enough to feel that way, but it's even worse to feel that way forever. That's why the psalmist asks, how long, how long, how long? I mean, look, you do not have to be like a trained um, literary critic to understand the rhetorical effect of how long. We all know that he is not asking for a particular date on the calendar Kind of like our kids when they're asking from the back seat, how long? Don't really care how many miles it is, and they don't really care how many minutes it takes. They are informing you through their question that they do not like being cramped up in the back seat. How long is a rhetorical device to say, I don't like being back here? And David, or whoever wrote this, is saying, I don't like this. This is going a really long time. Andrew Fuller said, It is not under the sharpest, but but under the longest trials 
that we are most in danger of fainting. Friends, you understand that the intensity is just a little piece of the puzzle. What what makes this so bad is its seeming eternality. Listen to Fuller again. It is not the sharpest, but the longest trials that are most in danger of fainting. Like, that, that is when things are the worst, when it just won't go away. I mean, what could cause this? Friends, I just want to be really real with you for a moment. If you're in an intense season of work, or if you're enduring prolonged financial strain, or especially those of you who are dealing with a chronic illness, like it has no hope of going away, or you have some type of ongoing defeat over sin, or there is some relational stress or non-existent relationship, I mean, like that weighs on you perpetually. And whatever it is that David is dealing with here in particular, it just won't go away. And that's the worst part of it. And the lament continues, by the way. He shifts gears here from the interrogative to the imperative. He starts demanding some things of God. This is why I call it, by the way, uh, release and request. Notice how he starts requesting, demanding things of God. Verse 3, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, he keeps mentioning this enemy, and it causes us to wonder, what is this enemy? I I am guilty of this from time to time. Sometimes uh, pastors, preachers, because they want to be coming across as historically informed and erudite, uh, will try to say, oh, well, we know what was going on in David's life here because of this and this and this. And so we can conjecture that we know exactly what's going on in David's life, but we don't. There's no way to know, A, whether or not it was David, and then B, what's going on. What I, and this is a good thing. I know we love historical specificity, but I want you to note something. It's really cool that God wrote some of these psalms for us so generally so that we can easily enter into them. There's no historical distance. He's intentionally broad and vague because all of us can easily identify with these feelings. And so let's just embrace that for a moment. He's got an enemy, and we're not really sure what it is. If it's David, it could be a physical enemy. I mean, David faced those at like every point of his existence, right? When he first was entering into the monarchy, Saul was hunting him. And then once he became the king, he was constantly fighting against the Philistines and surrounding nations who wanted him dead. And then at the end of his reign, you may remember very well that his own son rose up in anarchy against him and tried to have him killed. I mean, he knew what it was to have a physical enemy, somebody who wanted to see him dead. But the text doesn't actually demand a physical enemy. It also could apply metaphorically to the enemy of death. Notice what he says. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Oh, excuse me, verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. (laughs) And then he refers to his enemy as potentially prevailing over him. Friends, I don't know what he's going through. It could be an actual opponent. It could be a metaphorical opponent. But this is what you know. He is dealing with some type of concrete opposition. And it is driving him to the point of despair that he thinks that he may actually die. He thinks he's going to die from this, whatever it is. And so he, he demands something of God. He says, behold me. Look at me. God, take notice. 
Do you see what I am going through? Answer me. You and I read that and we think, how disrespectful. But I want you to notice something. David feels the freedom to talk to God candidly because he enjoys such a close relationship with him. He says, look, listen, oh my God, my God. Yahweh, the the name in all caps, Lord there, is God's covenant name. It's the name that he used, basically, think about it, if, if anyone was ever on, I'll modernize this for a second, if you were ever on first name basis with God, he would say, call me Yahweh. Yahweh was the name that he would use to show that he was in close relational agreement with a certain group of people. It was the name that he would sign on the contract, if you will, to say, hey, this is me, I'm going to look out for you. And so, the author here calls out to God's covenant name, and then he adds to that, my God, there is a closeness that is here. And so, he feels this freedom just to speak candidly before God, and friends, isn't that that way in our relationship? When we have people who are close to us, we don't have to sugarcoat things, do we? We don't have to be so political with our language. We can just say exactly what we think, exactly what we feel. What I am fascinated by is that even in this moment, the psalmist just feels like this freedom to open his heart before God and say, look at me, listen to me. And this is beautiful. This is good. It's not disrespectful. But I want you to notice something else, especially for those of us who would try to assume That, you know what, maybe the psalmist is suffering because of sin. Maybe you try to modernize this thing and you would say, maybe I struggle with depression because I did something wrong. Listen to the words of one of the foremost psalm scholars on the planet. He notes, there is no confession or statement of sin to suggest that the trial was a judgment deserved. The urgency of the psalmist's plea springs from a sense of profound anxiety, not penitence. As a member of the covenant people, his expectation was, was to be remembered by God and to see the light of his countenance, number six. But the long absence of such privileges evoked the anguished, anguished cry of lament. Uh, let me modernize this for you, friends. Uh, this is a believer. This is a saint. Uh, again, theologically, I'm going to do some adjusting here. This is somebody who's in Christ, if you will, and he's not in sin. There is no indication of any sin having been committed by this individual whatsoever. And so in his desperation, he he doesn't have time to make polite requests. He just cries out, help, listen. And then he, he prays for illumination. There is that phrase that's kind of confusing to me. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. I know what he means by consider, and I know what he means by answer me. But what does it mean to light up my eyes? Uh, that's just a Hebrew figure of speech talking about health. There's a, there's a cool story that, I, I mean, I've read the Bible through several times, and I don't, I don't remember this until someone pointed it out to me. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 27 to 29. And there's this guy named Jonathan. It's, it's Saul's son. And, and there's a battle that's going on. And 
Uh, in this battle, like, the guys fasted. It's a long story, but they fasted. Saul basically told them, don't eat. We're going to fast to God, and we're going to win this victory. Well, Jonathan never got the message. And so, and, and once this, this battle was over, like, he takes his staff, and he sticks it into a honeycomb, and then he eats the honey off the edge of his staff. And then all of a sudden, the text says this, and this is fascinating. Just listen if you want to understand how this metaphor works. It says that his eyes became bright. And the text will serve that as an intentional contrast to those who were faint. And then it adds this. Um, his eyes were shining. They were bright. It, it means that, like, he lit up. You know how it is, like, when somebody's tired, you see it in their eyes? When somebody's sad, you see it in their eyes? There's even statistical research out there that proves that you can't fake a smile. My parents used to get on me all the time for cheesy smiles. The grimace, you know. <laughs> you know how you can tell a real smile? And again, it, it takes multiple muscles in the face for this to work. But you can tell by someone's eyes. If, if you have the little crow's feet on the side of your eyes, it's a real smile. Anything else is fake and people can read it like a book. The metaphor makes sense. He says, light up my eyes. Give me life. Give me health. Encourage me in a way that other people would be able to see it. He says, I don't want them rejoicing over me. I mean, and he's just letting it out. And th- th- this is what I want you to understand, church family. That the psalm is actually leading those who are depressed by delayed deliverance to let it out. To let it out to God to convey concretely their complaints to him, to cry out in pain for change when, to quote the old hymn, the wrong seems so strong. Not only is such lament this opportunity for the individual, friends, but I would remind us as a church family that it would be the obligation of the entire community of faith. Not only would we let Not only would we lament if we were in this state, but we should also lament with others and let them do it. I think, I think that some of us would be reticent to ever speak to God in these ways because we we perceive more distance between us and Him than there really is. We need a better understanding of the gospel, the closeness that we enjoy so that we could speak freely and openly to God about everything, even doubts. And I'm not talking like, Lord, I had a bad day, but I'm talking like, God, you've forgotten me. You've abandoned me. And you know who my greatest concern is? Uh, Somebody in this church overhearing somebody else in the church say something like that and then correcting them. How dare you? Don't talk that way. You just need to trust the Lord. You just need to keep coming to church. You just need to read your Bible more. You just need to pray. Don't talk that way. Friends, the inspired text says, talk that way. The first invitation is to release and request. Just let it out to God. The second invitation is in verses 5 and 6. Recall so you can rely. Not only do you let it out, but I'll give another phrase here. You need to call it back. You need to think back to the way that God has worked in the past. He may not be working, at least by appearance's sake, in your favor in the moment. But you can certainly think back to the past. You're going to see this in the text again. Remember last week I was telling you that 
uh, Hebrew uh, poetry loves parallel ideas, not just rhymes. And we even saw last week a chiasm, right? It was shaped like thought A and then thought B, thought C, thought B, thought A. You're going to see another one of these. It's more simple. It's in this last two verses. You're going to have thought A, thought B, thought B, thought A. Uh, You could call it this, past blessing, present hope, present hope, past blessing. Notice how the psalmist arranges it. You, O Lord, oh, sorry, wrong one, uh, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. There's your past blessing. Notice this. And now what he says about the, the present. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now he's going to continue to say what he's going to do in the present and into the future. I will sing to the Lord. In this moment, I will sing. And then notice the past. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? Uh, what he concedes is that, that there are times, even though his present experience is horrific, he can actually think and remember the past times in which God has been good to him. And he specifically calls out God's uh, steadfast love. Uh, again, it's another one of those just really thorny, tricky words to translate. Uh, you would no, probably know the Hebrew word chesed. And sometimes it's translated faithfulness, sometimes it's translated loving kindness, uh, sometimes it's translated unfailing love. When, when we sang earlier, even, by the way, uh, great is thy faithfulness, which is so cool because it is in the middle of a lament. It's really the hinge point of lamentations. Faithfulness there is talking about chesed. It is talking about God's loyal love. I, you want to know what my favorite... Um, explanation of this. It comes from my kids' uh, Bible. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And this woman's no Hebrew scholar, but man, she seems to really get the idea. This is what she calls uh, steadfast love. His, God's, uh, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It works. (laughs) It's the idea of a committed relational love. Not just the kind of love, you know, like you fall in love, you fall out of love. Uh, No, we're talking about commitment. He could think about that time that God had made this covenant and commitment to him and his people. I mean, you got to think, just generationally, uh, he had been, whoever the psalmist is, has been part of generations of God acting faithfully on their behalf, delivering them in every sense of the word, uh, like creating for them, uh, I mean, a place to live, kicking out everyone who lived there, bringing them out of slavery. He's recalling all the faithful ways that God has acted on behalf of his people in times past. And you know what this does as he thinks about the past? It enables him to concede that things could be better for the future. That's why he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Why? Because I have trusted in your steadfast love. When he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation, I'm sorry, I've got one more little distancing exercise to do here. Um, 21st century Christians, especially in the United States, Immediately see the word salvation in the uh, New Te- I mean, Old Testament, and they're like, oh, I know what that means, I know what that means. Spiritual salvation, rescue from hell. Um, no, no, not in the Old Testament. That's not primarily what uh, the psalmist would have had in mind. And when he says salvation, uh, don't think of that spiritual category of being saved from hell. He is actually talking about deliverance from all the distress that he is currently enduring. 
He's saying, I actually, my heart anticipates a day where I will rejoice, where I will sing out with joy in your salvation, in the fact that you will bring me out of the present distress. Notice how he continues the future hope. He says, I will sing to Yahweh, just like we do today. I will sing to Yahweh. Why will he eventually sing to Yahweh? Because, notice this, he has dealt bountifully with me. He's looked back and he's seen all the ways that God has given him everything that he's promised. His past blessing. I think if I were to try to modernize this, you know, I was thinking about the kids crying out from the back seat, how long, how long, how long. I think that basically what, what is being communicated here is that God has such a good track record with his people. Uh, the psalmist is, is confident that he will one day sing in a choir full of rejoicing. Uh, to translate this to our modern day, uh, the kids will make it because they know that the parents typically make it. <laughs> they can sit out there, they can cry how long, how long, how long, but they're not, I mean, like when they kind of just think back on it a little bit, don't they always make it to the destination? God is inviting us to remember I've, I've gotten you to where you needed to be every time. Remember that. Remember that. And, and one day, it may not be right now. Listen to me carefully. It may not be right now, but one day, these things that you experience will subside and joy will return. What I find fascinating about this is that even the expression of lament is an expression of trust. For those of you who would critique those who are lamenting their situation before the Lord, you need to celebrate something. They are lamenting to the Lord. They're talking to God about it. It's a sign of health that you would take your deepest struggle and that you would give it to the Lord and say, Lord, what is going on? You know, by the very nature of the fact that we're asking Him, it shows that we haven't totally abandoned our faith. (laughs) We still believe that He's the one that can make it right. And you know what? Since we do have that past track record with him, we'll keep crying out and trusting that he will eventually one day deliver. He will relieve. You know, this is the strategy of the New Testament as well, where we're encouraged to remember the past so that we can rely on the future. We read it this morning in Romans chapter 8. What does Paul say? What's his argument? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did notice the past recollection of blessing here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, here's the future hope. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? (laughs) He argues, look, he says God's already given us his son. For those of us who are in Christ, this this is the thing that we're recalling. Like, our salvation has been secured. Christ has died for us. He has risen again from the dead. Okay, he's taken care of that, and then we argue from the greater to the lesser. If he has satisfied God's eternal wrath over my rebellion and has reconciled me with himself and given me the power needed to live a godly life and he will return for me, well, what do I do in the future? I just wait. He's gotten us there in the past. He will get us there in the future. That the past blessing, the recollection of past blessing, allows for the anticipation of future relief. 
I, um, I, I'm not trying to be insensitive by any means. I, I realize that the current state of things in our country uh, and in the state in particular when it comes to, to COVID is uh, depressing in and of itself. But having just experienced it in my own way, I, I, one of the most interesting aspects of that particular disease is the loss of taste. It's weird. I've never had a time in my life where I couldn't taste anything. And then all of a sudden, eating is about living. It's not about tasting. (laughs) So I decided, like, I wanted to take advantage of it. I wanted to eat as much healthy stuff as possible because I can't taste it. (laughs) I'm like, who cares? Just... But it came back to bite me because, like, it, you can still feel texture. So salad just isn't as cool as pizza ever. <laughs> but I, I, I'm bringing this experience to mind for those of you who have ever lost your taste because you realize even though you can't feel it in the moment, even though you don't get the delight, you don't get the dopamine response of whatever the food is, you still realize you need to eat. You still feed. You still take in nourishment. Basically, what I'm trying to explain to you is that the text is leading you to continue to partake of nourishment even if it doesn't feel nourishing. To continue to recall the past blessing of God even if it doesn't like jazz your soul in that moment. To keep gathering, and this is big, especially for those who are truly dealing with depression, to keep gathering with people in, in, in this context, so you can hear the preaching of the gospel, so that you can be reminded of the ways that God has worked in the past. Not just withdrawing, but leaning in, partaking, even though you can't taste it. Partaking even of the elements, the, the, those physical reminders of God's, I mean, of Jesus' broken body and shed blood on our behalf. Even though it doesn't, like you're not feeling it, even though it doesn't wow your emotions You still partake by faith of what God has accomplished for you in the past so that you can have the hope to press on in the present and future. Friends, I don't don't care who you are. I think I agree with Spurgeon here. He says, you may have never prayed this way, but you will. If you take seriously the charge to live for Christ in a Christless age, you're going to feel this way from time to time. Some of us are more prone to feel this way more and longer than others. But all of us will eventually feel this way. And I want you to recognize it's not strange. You're not weird. You didn't necessarily do something wrong. This is the way that God works in His people. There's an interesting um, passage in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, in which Screwtape, the, the senior tempter, uh, advises uh, uh, Wormwood, his understudy, his apprentice, uh, on how to, how to derail the patient. So this is the Christian. And, and, and he tells them, uh, the thing that you really need to capitalize on if you, if you want to knock this guy off course is uh, the law of undulation. 
I'm looking at everybody's eyes going, what? <laughs> Lewis explains, undulation. It just means variety. He, basically, what the, what the demon says to this younger demon to try to, to get him to throw the guy off course, he says, look, you need to, like we all know, we demons know that life goes up and down for these guys regardless. Sometimes they're healthy, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they feel good, sometimes they don't. Sometimes their relationships are strong, sometimes they aren't. He says, but we want, what we want to do, if we want to capitalize on the law of undulation, since everything goes up and down, what we need to do is help him to understand that in his spiritual life, make him think it's weird if things go up and down. Confuse him. Like, let him forget that every other area of life has ups and downs, but then convince him to think that, that his Christianity, that his relationship with God should always be up. This is what he says in particular. Now, it may surprise you to learn, young Wormwood, that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, talking about God bringing people to himself, he relies on the troughs, the low places, even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, but still obeys. You are the most dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. When you obey, not merely out of desire, but out of dependence. You're just trusting. This is the right thing to do. I, I, I know I'm not feeling it, but I'm going to keep obeying. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep partaking. I, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. I will keep trusting. Not just in the peaks but in the valleys. I'm most concerned as we bring this to a close about three groups of people who would be gathered here today and will be done. The, the first would be those of you who are downtrodden, downcast, depressed, whatever word you want to use, and you're not in Christ. I by no means want to add insult to injury, but I want you to know that there is, in this case, a diagnosable reason why you may feel that way. And it is because God created you to live, to thrive underneath His perfect rule. And when you rebelled against Him and you've done your own thing, you've placed yourself outside of that relational favor, and you indeed feel like things are off because they're off. They're off because you are outside of the grace that is offered you in the person of Christ. Sin, not always, but often, will produce within us these horrible feelings like something's bad. And the great news is, Jesus came to make things right. 
That's what it means, the righteousness of God. It's the rectification of God. It's, it's the, the right, God makes things right in Christ. He made him right in Christ because sin was the problem, and he solved the sin problem by paying for it. Uh, sin, its power has dominated us. He fixed that by rising again from the dead and having obeyed the law perfectly himself and actually agreeing that all who would place their faith in him would have the same power to do so. And the presence of sins that still haunts us will one day be fully and finally eradicated when he returns and purges this world of all sin and rebellion against him. Friends, things may be off in your own soul today because you are outside of Christ, and I would plead with you to come to him. So if you're outside of Christ and you are depressed, I'm not saying this will solve everything, but I am saying that this could be a symptom of a much deeper problem. You need righteousness. You need rectification. You need to be under the alignment of God. And you can only do that through repentance from sin and reliance upon Jesus Christ alone. There's a second category of person that I'm immensely concerned for, and that is the the downcast in Christ, the, the depressed you're in Christ. If the statistics are true, uh, there's, I don't know, 250 people here today, so that means there are at least a couple of guys and three or four ladies who could be dealing with this very thing. I really do have a feeling that in light of the way our world situation is currently, that it's probably worse. But I I want you to understand something. Friends, you are not alone. God is superintending what is going on in your heart just as much as he keeps the planets rotating around the sun. He orchestrates, listen to me, the ups and the downs. And he often does his best work at the bottom. I want you to know that you could feel this way because of unconfessed sin. That's possible but it's not demanded. You are not necessarily in sin. I want to read to you what one Christian author and lecturer said in his book, I'm not supposed to feel like this. He says, we believe that all Christians, and and, and notice these affirmations, I think these align with scripture, we believe that all Christians can experience worry, fear, upset, and depression. We also believe That being a Christian does not prevent us or our loved ones from experiencing upsetting and challenging problems such as illness, unemployment, or relationship, and other practical difficulties. And then, notice this, this is what we do not believe. We do not believe. Although at times we call, uh, although at times we could choose to act in ways that are wrong, and this can lead to bad consequences for us and others, We do not see anxiety and depression as always being the result of sin, neither do we believe that mental health problems are the result of a lack of faith. Uh, For it's just because, like, I get a cold doesn't mean I sinned. Nobody thinks, oh, Justin got a cold. What do you do this week? But that's a physical thing that you can see. Just because it's mental, there's a mental affliction, doesn't mean that you are no longer, like, that somehow you must have necessarily done something wrong. And I realize this is complex, but sometimes I think we just need to grow up and think a little harder. It could be because of unconfessed sin, but it could just be the sovereign providence of God. And it's okay. And you know what you need to do? Let it out to God and call it back in faith so that you can continue on trusting Him.
There's a third category of person that I'm concerned about, and we're done. It is the person who is in friendship with or relationship to someone who is in Christ and suffering. This is where I think we've gone the most dreadfully wrong. I, I want you to know if you're a caretaker or if you're a collaborator or you're a friend or a fellow church member of someone else who just seems to be experiencing inescapable darkness, you need to listen well to the words of Psalm 13. You need to encourage that brother or sister in Christ to let it out, to confess how they feel. Let them lament. Let them lament with you. Lead them to release it to the Lord and to request it to Him anytime they're feeling that. That is not sin. And then at the same time, not only would you need to allow them to do this, but I think you need to enter into it and weep with them. For those of you who are not yet uh, members of our church, we try to, to summarize for our whole church family what we think the Bible teaches us we should do in this thing called a church covenant. And basically, you could see a church covenant as the ethical counterpart to a confession of faith. The confession of faith says what a church believes. Uh, the church covenant says how a church behaves. And, and one of the things that we've summed up that I think is really well worded in our church covenant is not only that we will rejoice with those who rejoice, but we will weep with those who weep. I think guys like myself, we're all in on giving high fives and slapping people on the back when everything went great. But let me just tell you a tendency of mine, and it may be yours, and we all need to work on it. When people are weeping, when people are hurting, I tend to back off. Because I'm like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. You know what the text is saying? You don't have to do anything. Just be there. Let them cry out to God. Remind them of his past blessings.